five years ago when uh, Les announced to the board that he was going to be retiring in five years, that seemed like such a long time away. And then just a few, a couple of years later, uh, we formed a committee to search for our new executive director and uh, had several names submitted. Uh, many good men had their names submitted from various members. We sent an email to the entire constituency to get feedback of people that you thought might be uh, qualified. The board uh, came up with a list of qualifications, what we wanted to see, and so began the search and the interview process that took about uh, probably, what did we say, Richard, maybe a year, year and a half. I don't, from the first time, I remember speaking to him uh, the first time, I believe, in Springfield three years ago and just mentioning it, requesting it as a prayer request that he would just pray and not make a decision, don't knee-jerk react, don't say no, just begin to pray about that. And I was having that conversation um, with several men. And as I looked down those qualifications, Richard fit all of those qualifications. Uh, one of the qualifications that the board had a great deal of discussion about was how the home office would look. Uh, we even contemplated, is it, would it be possible to even move the home office if that was necessary? And we all came to the conclusion with the property that we had and already paid for and no debt that we would stay right in Granville. So one big hurdle I looked at was Richard had never not lived in Southern California. And now this move would bring him to Michigan. And I thought in my own mind and probably voiced it to some of the other men, that would be a miracle of God if they would want to do that. And through the process, I was amazed at their faithfulness, their humility, Wendy and he both because they were both very involved in this, the way that they prayed together, the way that they stayed open, and the way that God narrowed down the choices, down to one person. Um, I was tasked by the board to bring two to three candidates at that November meeting, had two up until two weeks before, and one of the men removed their names, and only had one, and went to the meeting sort of apologizing that we only had one candidate because we wanted to have more to interview as a board. So we interviewed Richard for a few hours. Wendy came in. We interviewed her. And we have a diverse board of men, uh, good men, all of them. And I anticipated and marked out four to five hours that night and the next day for discussion of this candidate. And um, the first person to speak on the board, I'm not going to say his name, but I remember who it was, he said, uh, I like him. Why wouldn't we pick this guy? That was the first comment. I'm like, all right, so those are fighting words for somebody on the other side, right? And pretty soon somebody spoke out, I do too. And all around that board, to the man, within 10 minutes, we said, this is the guy. And the way God narrowed that down and the unity that we had uh, through that process, I am convinced that Richard Vargas is our man to lead our fellowship right now and on into the future. Now, a word of warning to us all. He's not Les Lofquist. He's different. <laughs> I'm not even going to say who said that. <laughs> he's different, but he's different good. God uses different people at different times in different ways for different purposes. Les was our guy 19 years ago and was a phenomenal executive director. And I think Richard Vargas is our guy right now, and I believe he's going to be an excellent executive director. So I'd like to welcome him to speak to us tonight from the Word of God. Our executive director designate for about three more days, and then he'll be our ED, Richard Vargas. Thank you. I appreciate all of you and the many, many people that have come to me and said that they have been praying for me and for my family, uh, not just this, uh, this week, but through this whole process, we know that the hand of God is with us, and we're thankful. There is no better place to be, even California, there is no better place to be than in the hand of God, and so we are completely and totally comfortable wherever God would have us be. 
I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This evening I want to talk to you about partnership for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'd like to read the first nine verses. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned these words. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the living God. Would you join me in prayer, please? Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be here, gathered together as your people. And as you come and meet your people, you hallow this place. Your presence here in us, among us, and in your word makes this a holy place. And so we ask you, Lord God, that you would speak for your servants are listening. That you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us a heart to receive, a mind to perceive, and a will to obey that we might be pleasing to you in everything and in every way. And we thank you that this is only possible because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, Les mentioned earlier that, I, that I've worked in a bank. I remember clearly the day. We had many, many conversations over the last 10 months um, all, of all kinds of things and Les shared with you in his time in the Word of how he found out I worked in a bank. And uh, when he found out about it, he was impressed, but he really shouldn't be. It, it isn't as big of a deal as Les makes it out to be. I, uh, maybe some other things that Les could have been impressed by is I also worked at a fast food restaurant. Um, I was the fries guy. Um, I worked at a clothing store. I worked at an office supply store, a car wash. I worked as a bill collector. I worked at a pet store, and I was a custodian both at Biola throughout my schooling there, and then through Master's Seminary, I was a custodian as well. And as uh, I think about it, it is absolutely astounding and kind of humorous to me that God would call me. I am not extraordinary, so please don't buy all of the press releases, but God does Great things through lots of nobodies. Just like our brother Clegart reminded us the other day in his devotional. Even when Tom shared with you the process of what we went through, I was, I was definitely not seeking this position. I was more like Saul. I was hiding in the baggage when I was called. Even as we talked to a brother just before the service began, uh, I was reminded once again that in the interview, and you can ask anybody that was on that nominating committee, in the interview, I did everything to dissuade them from calling me. 
even recommending some of the other guys and saying they're a better choice. But God uses lots of ordinary people like you and me, doesn't he? I don't want you to turn there, but in Luke chapter 5, we have the account of Jesus calling the disciples to set aside their regular lives in, sort, in order to commit themselves to become his disciples. Now, we know from reading all of the Gospels that the disciples had already become familiar and sat and listened at the feet of the great teacher, but hadn't yet left everything to follow him full time. James and John and Simon and Peter were still engaged in their fishing business with the father of James and John, a man named Zebedee. And you're familiar with the account. The fishermen had fished all night. They had nothing to show for it. And in the morning, Jesus comes along to the shore and he calls them in. He says, push out from the shore and cast your nets out once again. Now, of course, being pros, they knew that those heavy nets would be easily seen in the daylight by the fish. But they humored Jesus and they obeyed him. The nets quickly filled with fish, and then the nets began to break, and the boat began to sink under the burden of so many fish. That glimpse into the sovereignty of the mighty power of Jesus terrified those fishermen because they knew that they didn't stand before any ordinary man. And it was in that context that Jesus called those men away from their business, No longer would they be fishers of fish, they would be fishers of men. In Luke 5, verse 7, it says this, They, the disciples, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them with these filling nets. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. The word in that verse for partners means more than simply simply the idea of them working together although that was true. That Greek word really points to a partnership, like a business partnership. These men didn't just work together. They actually pooled all of their resources together to pay for everything that they needed to run this fishing business. They pooled their money to buy the boats, to buy the nets, to pay for repairs, and even for the fishing rights that they would need for the lake. And whatever their work achieved... They divided the revenue according to the investment in the partnership. In other words, when Jesus called these fishermen to become fishers of men, they were already used to working together in partnership for a common cause in order to achieve a common goal. They already understood what it meant to put all their chips in so that they might see benefits on the other side of the investment. In his book, Habits of Grace, David Mathis writes about the partnership of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. It's quite insightful. He links together the word that is there in Luke chapter 5, and he actually points out that it's a synonym of the word that we're more commonly used to, which is koinonia, the word for fellowship. Mathis writes, the koinonia, Greek for commonality, partnership, fellowship, that the first Christians shared wasn't anchored in a common love for pizza, pop, and a nice clean evening of fun among the fellow churchified. Its essence was in their common Christ and their common life or death mission together in his summons to take the faith worldwide in the face of impending persecution. This, This fellowship, Mathis goes on to write, is no chummy hobnob with appetizers and drinks and a game on the tube. It is an all-in, life-or-death collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming opposition. True fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl and more like players on the field in blood, sweat, and tears huddled in the backfield only in preparation for the next down. True fellowship, Mathis writes, in this age is more the invading troops side by side on the beach at Normandy than it is the gleeful revelers in the streets on VE Day. When we talk about being brothers united strong, 
we really are talking about that kind of fellowship. A partnership that seeks to rally brothers and sisters around the cause of Christ. We are united because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are united for a purpose. For a great cause. Our partnership has a reason. We are grounded in the scripture, advancing the cause of Christ. And that is our great privilege. This week we've been served so well by all of our speakers, and in particular general speakers. Every man has repeated this theme of working together for one common cause. And tonight in this final session, I want us to take up this important thing one last time. As we've each looked at these matters from a different perspective, I hope we can see more clearly our need to band together, our need to partner for the sake of the gospel. And to begin with, I want to look at some dangers that we face as we continue moving forward. Dangers that threaten to derail our mission, that that threaten to derail our movements. And then we're going to be reminded from Scripture of those areas which, when they are practiced, They will actually advance the cause of Christ, Jesus, our Lord. So turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In the first four verses, I want you to notice that the apostle, as he writes to this very troubled church, he reminds them, he, he reminds us through them and their circumstances of hindrances to the cause of Christ. First, we see these hindrances to the cause of Christ. Notice in verses 1 to 3 again that there is a prolonged immaturity there in the church of Corinth. But our brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, not of the, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way or fleshly way? Prolonged immaturity. Now, we can make no mistake here. Paul was writing to Christian brethren at Corinth. He calls them, in verse 1, brothers. But even though he recognizes the presence of the grace of God in them, he also recognizes that they are immature. They are infants in Christ. Paul says, I fed you the milk of the word, the basic doctrines of the faith. I knew that these would be the building blocks upon which the deeper things of God would be added. But now, Paul says, now after a long period of time has passed, You're not ready to graduate to the solid food of the faith. He says, you still can't handle it. But there's a difference. You see, it's understandable when babies can't handle meat, but that changes over time. But it didn't for this church. Prolonged immaturity manifests itself in many ways. But we see here in this text that There are two ways that it derails the work of the church. First, in verse 3, we notice that it derailed the work of the church in the carnality that existed in their immaturity. As Christians, the expectation is that the church should behave as spirit-filled men behave. But Paul notes that many within this church are fleshly. They are carnal. They are acting in such a way as to be described as walking like mere men. There were many in the church of Corinth that were acting in many ways like unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, we are not mere men in Christ. We are men and women saved by the grace of God, and we are his children. And Christians get derailed from being used by God when they become carnal, carnal in their thinking, carnal in their living. 
But if that is even possible to conceive of, and true it happens, worse than that is when fleshly thinking and behavior derails a whole church and derails a whole movement. IFCA was founded by holy men of God who saw the apostasy of the church within the denominations that they were a part of. And so they came out from among them and they separated themselves to holiness. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says these things. In verses 6 through 13, the great apostle in the inspiration of the Spirit writes, your boasting in this carnality, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies, doesn't he? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see, the answer to carnality is spirituality. It is walking not in the flesh, but walking in the spirits. Practically speaking, it is holy living by the power of the Spirit of God. And all around us, we see, with great grief, we see pastors and churches and evangelical fellowships and denominations compromising and crumbling because they do not take the Scriptures seriously and its demand for holiness. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish minister of the 1800s, he spoke at the ordination of a young man named Dan Edwards. And he said this, Mr. Edwards, do not forget the inner man, the heart. The cavalry officer knows that his life depends upon his saber, so he keeps it clean. Every stain he wipes off with the greatest care. Mr. Edwards, you are God's chosen instruments. According to your purity, so shall be your success. It is not great talent. It is not great ideas that God uses. It is great likeness to Jesus Christ. Mr. Edwards, a holy man, is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to be an awesome weapon in the hand of God. Don't you? Then we must guard against carnality in our lives and in our churches. We have to seek to be holy as our God is holy because it will stop us from being used by God and advancing the cause of Christ. Notice what Paul says secondly that comes out of this immaturity in verse 3. In the second half, 
He says, you're still of the flesh. Then he goes on to say, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Jealousy and strife flows out of this immaturity as well. They are related outcomes of a spiritually immature person. You know, when we aren't working together for the common cause of the gospel, then our energies will be turned elsewhere. And one way is towards frivolous things. That our churches become uh, the centers of vanity fair. But another way Paul points to here, and it's towards infighting, jealousy, and strife. The church in Corinth wasn't marked by great spiritual advancement. As you take the time to sit and read through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you will repeatedly notice that the church is plagued with the concerns that the world is concerned with, about things that they are concerned with, but the church should not be. Popularity and food and cliques and personal rights and carnal pleasures. And even when Paul does turn to commend them about their worship, He spends a massive part of this first letter showing that their worship was infested with a selfish attitude that was manward and not Godward. And a church or movement that loses its focus will soon begin to fight one another. It'll begin to be self-focused. It will begin to be self-centered. And jealousy and strife are not a work of the Spirit's. They are a work of the flesh. The remedy of jealousy and striving is confidence in the power of God and not man. A lack of confidence leads to jealousy. A man or a woman who's not confident in their place in a relationship will be jealous. They'll strive to keep what they have and it leads to all sorts of trouble. A person who's not confident in their job will become jealous of a coworker who's seen as a competition and as a threat, and they'll strive to undermine their work. And a pastor who's not confident in the power of the gospel will be jealous of the, me and the, the ministry and the men that are all around him. A man that's not confident in what God is doing can't rejoice that revival is happening at another church because it makes him insecure about his ministry. And so he speaks disdainfully about the work that is going on. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for revival in the world. But are we so set on seeing revival, are we okay if it happens down the street at another church? We should be. We are all on the same page We are all on the same team. When our Southern Baptist Baptist brothers see souls saved, we should rejoice. And when they face trials, we should grieve and we should pray for them. We should pray for our regular Baptist brethren, for our grace brethren. We should pray for all of those around us in the whole church, not merely our own tribe. We aren't saying that doctrine doesn't mean anything. It absolutely matters, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful of the next hindrance to advancing the cause of Christ. Because if we have jealousy and strife in our heart and jealousy and strife in our churches and jealousy and strife in our movements, then it is evidence of what we see in verse 4, which is another hindrance. It is a party spirit. Look at verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Corinth had a lot of theological fanboys in their church, just like we have today. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul described the attitude that prevailed in this carnal church. Some followed Paul. Others, Apollos, others, Cephas, and still others, Christ. Probably using that as an excuse to cover their disdain for the apostles. I'm not following this Paul. No, 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 I follow Jesus. And that party spirit was dividing the church. It was causing the church to lose its focus on the work that was at hand. It doesn't mean we throw all caution to the wind. 
and join hands with every Tom, Dick, and heretic? We have our doctrinal standard. But it does caution us. Scripture cautions us against becoming so myopic that we can't work with anyone that is not IFCA. We clearly reject ecumenism. But brothers and sisters, the rejection of ecumenism does not mean the rejection of all other faithful, gospel-preaching, biblical churches and ministries. We often say that pastor, that church, they're not in the IFCA, but they're IFCA. But a party spirit would say, no, if they aren't with us, then they're against us. It reminds me of a fellow pastor I met in California who planted a church in our community in Wilmington. Wilmington, California needs Jesus. Make no mistake about it. So I welcomed this brother, this fundamental Baptist church that was being planted. I welcomed a a day where we came together. I met over coffee with them. We talked about our churches. We talked about our ministry. He was was a pleasant young man. And in the course of that conversation, it became clear that he couldn't partner with us. Because we weren't KJV only. And we didn't sing exclusively from a hymnal. Now, brothers, I could fellowship with him no problem. He was a, he was a great guy. I think he loves Jesus. I think he, he wanted to see souls won for Christ. I think he wanted to do the work of Christ. I think we had far more in common than we didn't have in common. And I could fellowship with him, but he wouldn't fellowship with me. He wouldn't fellowship with our church. He had an us for and no more mentality. And it saddened me greatly when his church plant shut down a few years later. Because I knew that it was in part to the fact that he had such a party spirit that he ended up alienating everybody else and serving all by himself. And going beyond this, there there are some who might even take that party spirit even further. They might even say that even within the IFCA, we're not able to fellowship with one another unless we line up in every way with our personal understanding of all kinds of doctrines. It actually reminds me of the guy I read about the other day. This is what he said. He said, I was walking in San Francisco along the Golden Gate Bridge when I saw a man about to jump off. I tried to dissuade him from committing suicide and told him simply that God loved him and a tear came to his eye. I then asked him, are you a Christian or, or a Jew or, or maybe a Hindu or, or, or what are you? And the man said, I'm a Christian. And I said, me too. Small world. Are, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? I said, I'm a Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. Well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Well, Northern Conservative Baptist, of course. That's amazing. I'm Northern Conservative Baptist as well. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. That's remarkable. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region? He said Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, it's a miracle. But are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him off the rail. And that's funny, but the truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. And and Satan loves that kind of foolish party spirit because he knows that if he can divide, 
he will conquer. Look down at 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verses 21 to 23. It says, Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. When we recognize that we are first and foremost servants of of Christ, and that on this side of eternity, we all, every one of us, see through a mirror dimly. We will give grace to those as we disagree on minor differences of doctrine, and we will work together in partnership for the greater cause of Christ. So, what should we be focusing on? We've seen the distractions that pull us away from serving Christ in the advancement of the gospel. Well, the word gives us in verses 5 to 9 at least two places we need to focus on to ensure that we are advancing the cause of Christ. First of all, in verse 5, let me read it again. It says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Here's the first thing that we need to do to advance the cause of Christ. It is to take a servant's posture. We need to take a servant's posture. You know, Paul took a sledgehammer to the party spirit because he wanted to demolish these statues dedicated to men. And both Paul and Apollos were no doubt embarrassed that there were divisions along the lines of their own personalities. And I say personalities because the divisions weren't along doctrinal lines because Paul and Apollos preached the same gospel. So what does he say? Apollos, he's nothing to be praised. Me, Paul? I'm nothing to be praised. No, Apollos and Paul, if they were to make a statement about themselves, Paul would insist that we see them, as he says there in verse 5, as servants, diakonoi, table waiters. Have you ever seen a statue dedicated to a table waiter? Even more. How many of us even know the name of of the waiter or the waitress that served our dinner tonight at our table. Many of us probably didn't even notice them unless we needed service, unless they were a little slow, unless they spilled some coffee on us accidentally. And that same word for a table waiter is the word that's used here. Paul says, stop putting the spotlight on the waiters. We're serving. Notice, as the Lord assigned to each. Paul's saying that some of the Corinthians were dedicated to Apollos and some of them are dedicated to Paul because they happened to be the one who led them to the Lord. And so they had gained their loyalty. And however thankful that they were, their loyalty was misplaced. We are not called by God to be loyal to men in the same way that we are to be loyal to the Lord Jesus. Our loyalty to others should pale in comparison to our loyalty to the cause of Christ and our service to the King of Kings. On Monday night, Pastor Montoya mentioned that he and I had spoken about me being his successor at his church when he retired. That's a secret most people didn't know until Monday night. I was shocked that he, that he let out of the bag. My, my mother-in-law, when she watches this uh, on video, is going to be shocked. She didn't know it. Behind every great man is a surprise mother-in-law, Pastor Montoya said. She's really, really going to be surprised. But you know, there's more to that story. After I was nominated and completed my first interview, I came back from the convention. I had to have a conversation with Pastor Montoya. Because we had already talked about that. So we had lunch together. I shared with him that I'd been nominated, which I knew he probably already knew, and he did. And I wanted him to know that I would stand by my commitment to him if he wanted me to. I want to be a man of my word. And so I sat with him, and I shared from my heart Pastor Montoya 
doesn't have a party spirit. And although he loves his church and he is loyal to his church, he is not jealous for his church and loyal to it above his loyalty to Christ and the common good of the movement. His plans for his future were pushed behind as he released me to surrender to the will of the Lord in the IFCA process of selecting the next executive director. A lesser man would have said no. No, you can't do that. Let them find another man. I have poured into you. I have invested in you. You have given me your word. You owe me. But he didn't say anything close to that. And as a great man as Alex Montoya is, he is like all of us, a servant, a table waiter for the Lord. Now, sometimes our movement is challenged by little pastor kings who lord it over their little church kingdoms. They have no vision for greater things for God, and they jealously hold on to what they perceive is theirs. Brethren, we are but servants to our great king. We are not to be like the world that scratches and claws its way to the top. We must be united in partnership for the sake of the gospel. And we cannot do that unless we take a servant's posture. Yes, Lord, whatever you would have of me, I will do it. Notice secondly, to advance the cause of Christ, Paul describes in verses 6 and 9 that it requires labor for the harvest. I planted, Apollos watered, But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Naturally flowing out of that servant, that waiter metaphor is the reality that waiters work really, really hard. And so do farmers. A lazy farmer is a hungry farmer. A lazy farmer is a bankrupt farmer. A lazy farmer is a dead farmer. And if we want to see spiritual crops, we need to work hard. And if you read through the book of Acts, you don't get the picture that Peter or Paul or the other apostles or the early church were lazy people. They labored tirelessly, night and day, toiling to exhaustion, pushing their bodies to the very limits. They didn't sacrifice for money. They didn't sacrifice for fame. They didn't sacrifice for power. They sacrificed for the cause of Jesus Christ. They did it because they love Jesus and they love the church. And there are three reminders given us about laboring there in verses 6 to 9. I want to see very briefly. Verses, verses 6 and 7, we have all our different jobs and we need one another for success. Paul's going to expand on the different jobs of the body of Christ later in this letter, but here he starts by relating it to the fact that each farmer contributes in different ways to the crop. Some plant, laying down the initial gospel seeds, while others water, continuing the process. Ultimately, the farmer does not make the seed grow, does it? It's God who breathes life into the soul and regenerates us. It is God who receives all the glory in every salvation we see in our churches. And we can't forget that we all have different jobs. That's a wonderful thing about IFCA. You don't have to have a Bible institute in your church. We have them. You don't have to establish a missions agency from scratch. We have agencies that will come alongside you and help you get missionaries out into the world. You don't have to reinvent the wheel of so many aspects of ministry because we're all working together and we can help one another in this process of preaching the gospel and making disciples. We all have our different jobs, but we need one another for success. 
And that shows up there in verse 4 where we see, secondly, that we stand or fall together in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are one, it says. This Greek word means one in an aggregate sense. All of us together are one. By ourselves, we're just a small piece. But when we work together, like the body imagery that comes later, we work as one. Some churches fancy themselves as a one-stop shop. They don't need anything from anyone else, they say. They think, it's nice that you have your little IFCA get-togethers, but I'm a busy, important pastor, and I really don't need you. And I would say to them, brother, you're being unbiblical. We are to be one. We see how wrong this is in the church. We see this as pastors. We have those Lone Ranger Christians. They worship all by themselves. Oh, pastor, I got YouTube on my phone. I can worship by myself now. I can watch you on the live stream. I can watch it on TV. Oh, they have it wrong too. We don't like that. We pull out Hebrews. Don't forsake the assembling together. Well, brothers, that's more than church. Because we're all to work together for the common cause of the gospel. Notice again in verse 8. We may only be farmers, but verse 8 tells us this. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labors. We may only be farmers, but we all need to cooperate. We need to partner together, or we'll see less success for our labors. One day we'll receive our wages from the Lord. And we need to work together, working as one, so that we might see a greater harvest of souls for Jesus. When we work together, we accomplish more. That's not something I'm making up. Les has been saying that for years, about 20 years. And before him, Dr. Gregory was saying it. As a matter of fact, we could go all the way back to the establishment of IFCA and its purpose for gathering us together is because we can accomplish more than we can separately. And really, that's what verse 9 says, is that we don't work alone. We don't work alone. For we are God's fellow workers. You see, the work is great. The soil in some places is rocky and hard. As I hear missionaries describe some places, Muslim lands sometimes, other places, even inner cities, say, I've been preaching and preaching and preaching and nobody is getting saved. In other places, it's burned over. Nominal Christianity is the word of the land. In other places, it's infested with weeds. And praise the Lord, in some places, especially in other countries of the world, the soil is rich and it's just waiting to receive the seed. But the work is so vast. By ourselves, we can become overwhelmed. We can grow weary in the work. But don't lose heart, my brothers and sisters. Don't lose heart. We do not work alone. Verse 9 says, We are God's fellow workers. Soon ergoi. Paul is stressing that we belong to God. We are his workers, but notice we are fellow workers who work together. We work together as God's laborers. He has saved us to serve, and we do so as humble servants, as humble farmers, together for a common cause that is greater than any of us. And we do so in the power and authority of the God who has sent us. We are God's workers and we labor together for him and in his power but paul also means to stress that we work in cooperation with god when we work as god has ordained christ established the church and we do not work alone for god is with us in this mighty work Paul finishes verse 9 by reminding the Corinthian church that they are gods as well. As messed up and carnal as they are, he says, you are God's field. The field of work 
where the apostles had labored. It belongs to God, not to men. Don't give men glory. Give God glory. It's His vineyard. The building up of the church that is instructed to be built according to His blueprint belongs to Him. The field is not ours. The church is not ours. They belong to Christ. We labor in Christ's church for Christ's glory and not our own. And when we keep that at the forefront of our minds, we will be great partners for the sake of the gospel. The great epistle to the Ephesians tells us in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Therefore, let us stir one another up for the sake of the gospel. Let's go back to our churches, back to our ministries, back to our homes, back to our countries, back to the dark portion of the Lord's vineyard, and let's work together to bring the light of the gospel to those who are still in darkness. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Rise up, O men of God. The church for you doth wait. Her strength, unequal to her task, rise up and make her great. Lift high the cross of Christ. Tread where his feet have trod. As brothers of the Son of Man, rise up, O men of God. Let's work together as brothers, united and strong. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have empowered us and strengthened us and given us your word. We thank you for the mission that you have placed upon our heart and the burden that you have put into our bosom that is a burning bosom that we cannot get rid of until we have preached that very gospel. We ask you, Lord God, you would stir our hearts up to the work of the ministry that we might go out and that we might preach that gospel, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, that we might see a greater chorus brought before you on that day when we sing to you. We ask you, Lord God, that you might receive all the glory, that no man might steal from you what you alone deserve. Help us to partner together, Lord, to do the work that you've given us. Help us to rise up. Help us to hear your call. It is in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.